Father, thank you for this time that you've given us together uh, to be in your word. Lord, it is humbling that you have called us uh, to be those who represent your Messiah on earth. Uh, And so, Lord, we pray as we try to be faithful to the call that you've placed upon our lives, we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to carry out this stewardship in a way that brings you glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This morning we're starting a two-part series entitled The Christian and Discipleship. The Christian and Discipleship. The main objective here is that we want Calvary Bible Church uh, to be a place where discipling and making disciples is part of the DNA. And, And in a real sense, that's already true. Right? There are so many of us, so many of you, who are faithfully discipling others uh, and carrying out that stewardship in a way that's admirable and exemplary. But we want to just make sure uh, that we shore up our foundation a bit, and in, in another sense, really to stir you up uh, to a renewed commitment uh, to be making disciples and to be faithful uh, to the calling that God has placed on each one of us as disciples. So I can't tell you what house you should buy. I can't tell you what car you should invest in. And I can't tell you what college you should attend or what major you should choose. I can't do that, and none of us can do that, with any authority at least. But I can tell you that if you are a Christian, you are called to be making disciples. That is God's will for your life. I don't know about all these other things, these gray area uh, where you have freedom to make decisions. I don't know. But I do know if you are a Christian, God has called you to be discipling. And my objective is to prove that to you this morning. All right. So that's my simple objective is to prove to you that God is calling you, has called you to be a disciple maker. And so what we'll do this morning is look at the theological foundation for disciple-making, or the call to discipleship, the call to disciple, rather. And then next time we meet, at least one more time, we'll look at some of the practical aspects of disciple-making. All right. So you're called to be a disciple-maker. Uh, the question is, what does that look like? And so here this morning, theological foundation, I want to convince you of the call, and then in a couple weeks, uh, next time we're together, we'll look at some of the practical applications of what it looks like to make a disciple. So let's read Matthew 28, all right? This is a a foundational text for discipleship. Uh, It's one that you're very familiar with, but I hope we can look at it with fresh eyes this morning, okay? So let's start in, uh, we'll read the whole chapter together, Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the, woman, to the women, Do not be afraid, 
For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and, and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Very familiar portion of Scripture. But what I want us to do, hopefully, is to see this in a a very personal light this morning. And and we're going to focus on verses 18 to 20. And what I want you to see specifically in verses 18 to 20 is threefold. And you see that in your outline there. In these verses, Jesus makes first a clarifying claim. A clarifying claim. And following that claim, he gives his disciples a clear command and a promised comfort. A clear command, a clarifying claim, a clear command, and a promised comfort. And that will be the structure that we'll use as we walk through this text together. So first, Jesus makes a clarifying claim. Look with me at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, why is this an extraordinary claim? Think of the context, think about what's going on in Matthew. Why is this extraordinary? Yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinary claim. To, to claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth is extraordinary. Uh, that is very true. It's a claim to deity. That's right. But what has just happened to him? He 
He was put to death by authorities that, by all appearances, would seem to have a little more power than he. It's, it's a remarkable claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth from a man who just days ago had been mercilessly handed over to Roman authorities by Jewish religious authorities and had been brutally tortured and crucified and essentially was passive throughout the whole process. Right? He was like a sheep led to the slaughter. Right? The sheep doesn't have authority over the one sacrificing it. Right? And so by all appearances, here's a man who has, as a sheep led to the slaughter, turned himself over to authorities. And now, having been risen from the dead, he's claiming to have all authority. Jesus' disciples, remember, after the crucifixion, had been scattered. That all hope seemed to be lost. The man they believed to be God's Messiah has been murdered. But incredibly, that same man they had seen crucified and buried appeared to them a few days later alive and well. And naturally, these disciples were struck with fear and amazement. And when we look in verse 17, we see that there were two responses of Jesus' disciples. What were those two responses? Worship and doubt. Worship and doubt. And we saw this in verse 9, where the, the women, they see Jesus and they fall at his feet and they worship him. And here, the disciples see him again in this place that he had designated in Galilee. And some of them worship, but others doubted. That's an important contextual statement to understand what's going on in the Great Commission. Right? There were these these disciples, a section of them who, who, or a segment of them who doubted what they were seeing. They, they were unsure. There were unanswered questions. There were things they simply did not know or understand, right? That is natural uh, when you see someone uh, risen from the dead, right? I mean, how many people have you seen risen from the dead? Right? It's, it's shocking that this would happen. And so there's doubts and questions that they have. And so in verse 18, what Jesus does for them is he brings to these disciples, the ones that are worshiping him for sure, but also these disciples who are doubtful. He brings clarity to them. He brings clarity. Not that Jesus had not been clear before, but we know that Jesus' disciples throughout his ministry uh, were not the fastest learners, right? And uh, that's kind of a characteristic trait of Jesus' disciples. Amen? (laughs) Yeah. We all feel slow to to learn what Jesus has called us to do and implement it into our our lives. And that's, we we have, uh, we're following in good steps in that sense. But here they were, slow to learn, unclear about what was going on. And Jesus comes to them and he makes a clarification, a clarifying claim. And I'm calling it a clarifying claim because when Jesus declares that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, it clarifies at least two things. Right? First, it clarifies Jesus' identity. Right? When you say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that's an identity statement. And Jesus here is identifying himself as the king of kings. 
And the word for authority here refers to the right to control or command. A right to control or command. Here, it refers to the absolute control of Jesus over the destinies and activities of human and heavenly beings. Right, I'll read that again. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, he's saying this. He has absolute control over the destinies and activities of human and heavenly beings. That's what it means to have all authority in heaven on earth. Right? So it's really a, it's called a mirrorism. So it's a way of, of saying all authority. Uh, it's a way that you use the parts to describe the whole. So if we were trying to find something in, and we said we searched high and we searched low for it. Right? We searched high and low. We searched everywhere. Right? There was not a place we didn't search. When Jesus says, I have authority in heaven and on earth, he's saying, I now, having been crucified and resurrected, I now have all authority, comprehensive authority, so, such that nothing exists outside of Christ's domain. This is what we mean when we say he is the Lord of all. Right? And notice, this is interesting, notice that he says, all authority has been given to me. Passive. So what does he mean? Why does he say, I have ascertained all authority in heaven and on earth. I've acquired it by my might. No, he says, I have been given all authority. It's been given to me. Well, the statement is an echo, really, of Daniel chapter 7. So why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> So in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is given a dream in which four great beasts come up out of the sea and cause all sorts of mayhem on the face of the earth. And so chaos is what these beasts produce on the the earth. But then Daniel looks and in verse 9, he sees what appears to be the heavenly throne room of God. And in verse 9 he says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture, or garment, was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning with fire. And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened. So we have chaos on earth, but the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne. And then in verse 13, we re- well, let's read verses 11 to 12 as well. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Chaos on earth, peace, control, sovereignty in heaven. Right? 
And then in verse 13, I kept looking in the night, visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And notice the language in verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What a wonderful text. Uh, And the echo of this text is in Matthew 28. It's really clear. You see the same language. But what was the source of authority? Who, Who is the one who gives authority and dominion to the Son of Man in, in this passage. The Ancient of Days. At the Father. The Father gives authority to the Son. And we see the same thing in Philippians 2, 5-11. We would go there and read it, but we, we started six minutes late. I want that to be on record. Um, read that sometime. You have the same language where you have the Son, Jesus, and He's given authority and dominion. He's given a name, Philippians 2, 9-11, which is above every other name. And what is that name? Lord. It's the name Lord. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is not a mistake, right? We, we know that because we believe that Scripture is perfect. But when Jesus uses passive language to say in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's, he's reaching back into the Old Testament that is being fulfilled even as Jesus is speaking. And the Father, then, is the one who gives the Son all authority. And this is a Trinitarian statement. It's a mystery to fully comprehend. We have the Father and the Son who are one God, co-equal, co-eternal, yet they are distinctly two persons. And the Father grants the Son to have all authority in heaven and on earth. So this is the clarification of Jesus' identity. It looked as if Jesus was powerless over the people who handled him so, there seems like a, not wor- a proper word there to come up with, um, brutally, right? He looked powerless. But was he powerless? Absolutely not. Right? He, even before the crucifixion and resurrection, he could have commanded the, the angels of the Lord's army. He could have dispatched them, but he, he humbly decided not to do that and to embrace what the Father had planned, the plan of redemption. Now, having been in one sense stripped of his, his glory coming to earth and condescending himself and being brutally treated and taking on the cross, now Jesus has been resurrected and has all authority in heaven and on earth. The cross was not the end of Jesus' authority and power. Rather, it was the pathway to Jesus' coronation as the sovereign 
messianic king. Having endured the cross, Jesus was now able and willing and um, worthy to wear the messianic crown. Right? So Jesus comes to his disciples who were confused and not sure about what, what's happening, and he says to them, I am him. I am the one. I am the Messiah. All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the king. You're right to worship me. Right? It's a clarification of who he is. And in declaring his identity and clarifying that for his disciples, he also clarifies the role of his disciples. Right? If you are a follower of the king, that makes you or it, it, it tasks you with a specific responsibility. And what is that responsibility? What is the role of Jesus' disciples? Well, it's this. It's the role of an ambassador or representative. Kings have ambassadors to represent them when they are away. And here, Jesus makes it clear that all of the actions that will be carried out by His disciples are to be carried out in reference to His sovereign kingship. Everything they do from this point forward is to be done in light of the King. And here's really where I get that. Verse 19. Go therefore. Right? So verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. In light of what I just said, you go and make disciples. In light of the kingship of Jesus, you are now to live your life. They are to be his ambassadors on the earth. We call them apostles, right? They're representatives of him. An ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a state as its permanent representative in a foreign country, right? They were to be Christ the King's official representatives on earth. And that is the role of every disciple, right? Disciples, if you are a follower of Jesus, and most people are not coming to Sunday school at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, if they're not following Jesus. Amen? <laughs> um, so this is a sort of assurance of your salvation. Um, but you are a follower, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be an ambassador for Him. Not only are you called to do that, but that is your primary role in life, is to represent Him on earth. Paul said it this way, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Ephesians 6:18, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. Right? He was Christ's representative. On earth, how was Paul able to endure what he endured? Well, in one sense, the thing that kept propelling him to go to synagogue after synagogue and be brutally beaten and and, uh, maligned and tortured and uh, mistreated was that his life was about representing Christ everywhere he went. 
And Jesus said, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more are they going to malign those of his household? And if they treat the king this way, are they going to hesitate to treat his representatives you know, like they're nothing? No. And, and Peter emphasizes in 1 Peter 4 that part of living faithfully for Jesus is understanding that the one we follow was maligned and mistreated in this world. And he was perfect, flawless, and he was maligned and mistreated. And we say we follow him. Right, so what ought we to expect in this world? Right. right. So we don't want to shy away from the things that God has called us to. And, and, and Paul also said that uh, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? If you represent Christ on the campus of TCU, right, it's very likely that there is going to be some reproach come upon you. Right? If you represent Christ in your workplace, right, it's likely that there will be reproach. Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples in a, a similar word here, he calls them witnesses, not ambassadors, but witnesses. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You're to be witnesses, ambassadors, representatives of Christ. So this then is the sole occupation of the Christian an ambassador or witness for Jesus. Right, so, do you believe that Jesus is king? Okay. Now, you don't have to answer this one out loud. Are you living as one of his ambassadors on earth? If I were to shadow you throughout your day, would I see you operating as an ambassador for Jesus. It's a humbling thought. Hour by hour, minute by minute, this is my objective in life. And am I doing that? When I'm alone, when no one is there, when I'm in public? Am I functioning as an ambassador for Jesus. So this is God's call on your life. Alright? Are there any objections to that? No objections? I'm just asking a question so I can drink some coffee. Alright, no objections. Well, if that's true then, the follow-up and natural question is, okay, well, what do we do as Jesus as ambassadors, right? Alright, you're an ambassador in your home. Mother of five, mother of two. You're an ambassador in your home. But what do you do as an ambassador for Jesus in your home. What are we called to do? How do we represent and witness Jesus in the world? Well, that is what verses 19 and 20 tell us. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All right? You are an ambassador for Jesus, and this is his command on your life. Make disciples. Make disciples. This is your job. 
It's the only command in verses 19 to 20, 18 to 20 even, right? Make disciples. That's the command. That's the great commission that is binding on every one of Jesus' followers. Make disciples. Now, let me ask you another question. How are you doing in this area? Are you making disciples? If not, this is why we're here, right? This is why we're doing this study, right? We want to help you grow in this area, right? So our job as pastors is really to oversee, right? To help you walk um, according to Christ's command, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And that's our job uh, one another, with one another, is to help one another walk out the commands of Jesus. And the command of Jesus here is very clear. Make disciples. And if you're not doing that, you need to start. Right? It's as simple as that. So we're going to talk about what that looks like. But here, again, before I get into all the practical stuff, we're trying to establish a theological foundation. So what does it mean, then, to be a disciple? If that's what we're to do, to make disciples, what is a disciple? Well, a disciple, to put it very simply, is a student. It's a follower of Christ. To be a follower of Christ is, in this sense, is, sorry, I, I misread that quote. To be a, follow, a disciple is to be a follower of someone. To be a disciple is to be a follower of someone, right? It's following Christ. In the sense of adhering to the teachings or instructions of a leader and in promoting the cause of such a leader, right? It's to, to simply follow but this is a little more intense than just to saying, be a disciple, right? The, what does the text say? Does it say, be a disciple? It says, make disciples. Make them. This is provocative. Make a disciple? How can we do that? Literally, it's cause them to be a disciple. Go find some people and cause them to be a disciple. I have not had any luck doing that. (laughs) I don't know about you. Cause them to be a disciple. This is what we see in Acts 14.21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Made many disciples. They made them. They caused them to be disciples. So what, what, is he, what does he mean when he says, make them be disciples? Well, he clarifies that as he unfolds these instructions. So the command is to make a disciple. But we, we get a, a better understanding as we sort of zoom in here. And so let's look at the focus, right? The command is make disciples. But what's the focus? Where is he, what's the scope of this discipleship? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is an outward focus. It's others oriented. He says, go therefore. And the word translated go is actually, this is going to be a little bit grammatical. All right, so hang in there. Is actually a participle that's usually translated as going. Right, it's a participle, going. And this has led some people to translate this section of Scripture like this. Going therefore. 
make disciples. Or as you go about your life, normal life, as you go, make disciples. The idea here, that some people suggest at least, is that Jesus is assuming that his disciples are already going. And he's just telling them, as you live out your life and be faithful, make disciples. However, that's not accurate. <laughs> um, it is true that you are going, right? You go in, you, do your, you live your life every day. Uh, but to say that it's as you are going, make disciples, is, uh, as one writer said, it's to make the Great Commission the Great Suggestion, right? So as you go about your life, just make disciples. That's not what's happening here. There's good reason our Bibles read go and make. The word go here is linked with the verb make disciples and is also functioning as a command. So go and make, work together to sort of emphasize this work of discipling. The structure here is called an attendant circumstance participle. That will be on the quiz. <laughs> when it's linked with an imperative, it gives the, the verb stronger force. And this structure occurs in context where an action is to be performed with urgency. All right, let me show you what I'm talking about. Slip over to Matthew 2. So he's, go and make disciples. There's a a note of urgency about it. Matthew 2, verse 7. You remember, Jesus has been born. The Magi come. um, They meet with Herod. They speak with Herod. In verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Remember, Herod is nervous about this new king. It's going to be a rival to him. So he wants to know, where's this king going to be born? In verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Go and search. Go and make disciples. He's not saying to these magi, as you go along your way, casually, search carefully for the child. No, he's saying go. And when you're going, and as you're going, you're doing this with a purpose and a point. Go urgently and search carefully for the child. So in our text, uh, the emphasis is on making disciples, and there is urgency here. right? So it's not as if you have the option to say, well, I'm a Christian. Right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a follower of the king. But I just, I don't know how to make disciples. I don't know what I need to be doing. I don't know what that looks like. I'm just going to sit tight and, and just be comfortable for now. And then I'll, you know, I'll make disciples you know, after I read these books for a year or whatever. You know, after I get it all figured out. No, there, there's urgency here in disciple making. The king is calling you to make disciples, and he's telling you to go. But to to sort of get back into our context here with Matthew 28, we need to figure out, okay, what does, what what is the focus here? All right, and this is important for us when we think about discipleship within the church. We need to remember 
that these people, the people to whom Jesus spoke, were Jewish. Right? They were Jewish. And at this point in history, Judaism was almost entirely ethnocentric. Right? Inward focused. They were so inward even that their method of evangelism or proselytizing was to bring people to Jerusalem. Right? It was not, we wouldn't tell anyone anything out in whatever scattered Roman province we were in. Right? If you want to know anything about Judaism, come with us to the temple. Right? Bring them to the temple, bring them to a festival. Right? It's come see what we do. Right? It's really inward focused. But this inward ethnocentricity could not, wouldn't work in the New Testament or the New Covenant. Right? It's not enough. Right? Because in order for the Great Commission to be accomplished, we can't be inward focused. Right? We have to be outward oriented. Right? We have to be outward oriented and, and think in terms less of ourselves and more of others. And I would say the fundamental hindrance to us in our discipleship is inwardness, inward focus, right? an inward preoccupation with self. It's our, our default. Your default is to think way too much about yourself. I know that is true about you because it's also true of me. Uh, But someone turn for us and read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. What does Jesus do with our inward self-focus? Read it loud because you don't have a microphone. That's right. He died for all so that those who live, as you and me, would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised on our behalf. You will not start discipling until you get that. Until you comprehend that fundamental to Jesus' atoning work on your behalf is to set you free from preoccupation with self and, and get you looking outwardly, right? And when we do that, we find we are embracing our role as ambassadors for Christ. Right? We represent Him. This is Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Uh, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? It's not even about me anymore. I, I don't even think about myself anymore. Right? I'm, I'm just living as a representative for Christ. My fundamental identity is an ambassador for the King. Right? And so now the question is not, man, I'm really hungry. It's 12.30. We've been here. You know, Church was done at 11.30. We've been here. It's 12.30. I'm really hungry. Uh, We've got to get home. I know I need to talk to this person. I need to get home, <laughs> right? It's no longer that, right? We die to ourselves. We die to our own. Uh, of course, you have to feed yourself, all right? Um, but we die to our own impulse to just prioritize ourselves, and we start living 
others-oriented. So the focus becomes outward, right? And that is the Great Commission. And this was revolutionizing for these men, right? If we go back to Matthew 10, and we're, we're not going to have time to do all of this, but if we go back to Matthew 10, do you remember when Jesus is sending out his disciples? Do you remember, I think it's verse 7, someone turn there. Jesus gives some very uh, shocking instructions. Matthew 10. Oh, it's verse 6, sorry. I'll read it. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter any cities of the Samaritans. But rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only go. This is the focus of your mission. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's Matthew 10. Now we're in Matthew 28, and Jesus is saying, go to all nations. Well, what has happened between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28? The death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus has walked the path of humiliation, right? He, he's walked the path of humiliation. He's wore the crown of thorns. Now he has assumed the messianic crown of life and has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this is a new inauguration, right? Uh, we're going to talk about this season. What is this season? Uh, well, it's the season of Gentile ingathering. And that's clearly laid out in Romans 11. And so now there's a focus shift from Israel being hardened and a partial hardening coming upon Israel. And now the focus is upon the Gentiles in bringing the nations into God's kingdom. And we exist as Gentiles, as those who have, are the beneficiaries of faithful, the, the apostles were faithful with this charge. They passed the baton to the church fathers. They were faithful with the charge. And it's been passed on and on and on for 2,000 years. The Gentiles, you and I, have been gathered in to this kingdom of the Messiah. And even now, He's reigning and ruling. And one day, He will come and consummate His kingdom on earth. But right now, this is a season where Gentiles, the world is being brought in to the kingdom. That is what discipleship, in one sense, is about. And I got off on a different point. So, the focus is others. It's outward-oriented. What about the means? All right, This is the point I just got on a little bit. Forgive me for that. The means. What is the means of carrying out the king's command? You're an ambassador, right? You're to be outward focused, going to the nations. How are we to do it? What are the means? Well, the means is twofold, right? He gives very clearly two ways of making disciples. First, baptizing. Second, teaching, right? Baptizing them. He says, let's get back to our text, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All right, how do we do that, Jesus? baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
baptizing and teaching. That is the means by which we make disciples. The word baptize, I don't want to open up a can of worms here. It's not that complicated. Uh, it's really not. It means to plunge, dip, or wash. All right? It means to plunge, dip, or wash. Um, I'm really exercising some self-control here. Throughout the New Testament, baptism is presented as the first step of obedience for believers after they have embraced the Lord Jesus in saving faith. Right? We have no precedent to baptize children. Um, there is just no precedent. The Word itself doesn't allow for that. Um, we love our brothers and sisters who want to baptize babies. We love you. We love you. We're glad you have the gospel right. Uh, but this is just an area where it's very clear. I had a, let me just make a joke here really quick to lighten the mood. Um, I had this, uh, this man in, it was very influential to me in college, and uh, he's the man, I think I've mentioned him before, his name's Richard Owen Roberts. Uh, Paul Washer called him the last of the prophets, and he's like in his 90s now. Uh, but he's the kind of man when he speaks, you just, the, you know, the crickets, right? I mean, it's just like no one dare speak or move, because Richard Owen Roberts is about to say something. Well, he, he joked about this one time, and he said, uh, you know what? Everybody has a right to be wrong. <laughs> and we were like, yikes. Um, but it, anyway, all right, we're off that topic. Okay, so implicit then, as those who believe in believer's baptism, implicit in the command to baptize is conversion, right? We're not baptizing people who are not professing faith in Jesus. right? So no one is baptized who has not first repented and believed the gospel. right? And this is very clear in Acts 2, 38-39. So let me read that for you. Acts 2, uh, actually we'll start in verse 37. Now when they heard this, this is after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've believed, be baptized. Repent, believe, be baptized. And then notice verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And this last part is maybe the most crucial. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Right? The people who are baptized are those whom the Lord has called to Himself. Now, why am I talking about baptism? Well, Jesus identifies this as the means by which disciples are made. And if we are going to be faithful disciple makers, we have to have a right understanding of baptism. But there's an important element here that I want to just tease out. And that element is this. Proper teaching must precede baptism. Right? There has to be clear communication of the gospel before someone can be baptized. Right? So there's this implicit reality here that evangelism must take place. Gospelizing must happen before baptism. So Jesus highlights baptism 
and teaching as the means, and implicit in baptism is another set of teaching. That is, sharing the gospel. So that's why we want to make sure that the one being baptized has understood the gospel. Because baptism follows true conversion. And so the point of all this is to say, if you want to be an ambassador for the king, you've got to prioritize baptism and, and teaching. And when we say baptism, what we're talking about is evangelism that leads to baptism, right? You, we don't need to be going around and baptizing everyone, right? Baptism in the Lord's Supper or ordinances of the church, which is why we baptize here. But our job is to be faithful with the gospel to make sure that the people we are interacting with understand that the king gave his life to redeem them. And if they repent and believe in him, then they need to be baptized and walk as ambassadors for the king, just like we are. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, there's much to be said about that. We have five minutes. So, the first means of discipleship is the baptism of true converts. Second is teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. This is verse 20. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me just mention really quick. This is a Trinitarian statement. One name, three persons. And then verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is where it gets really practical. This is where discipleship begins to become very clear for us. Discipleship is simply coming alongside someone who has believed the gospel, been baptized, and now you come alongside them and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. It's that easy, right? It's that easy. Well, it's that simple, right? Unlike baptism and conversion, discipleship is this continual, ongoing process process where we are providing instruction to new believers, old believers alike. Anyone who has not had someone come alongside them and and help them to obey what Christ has commanded. And and this is really what biblical counseling is. There are, at times in our lives, we come to places where we, we, we are stuck, right? Where we feel like maybe we're spiritually dry, uh, our marriage is at a crisis, we're struggling. Um, you know, pick your problem. We come to these moments where it just seems like we can't make process, progress. Well, biblical counseling, when we talk about that, what we're talking about is where someone comes along and says, let us help you Obey Christ's commands in this specific area, right? Because you're at a gridlock because you are not following Christ's commands in this specific area in your marriage. You're not being Jesus' kind of husband or Jesus' kind of wife, right? Or Jesus' kind of employee, right? What you need, what we all need at times, is someone to come alongside us and do what Jesus says. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Now, notice that he does not say, teach them to know all that I have commanded. Right? He says, teach them to observe. 
Right? The word literally means to keep watch over or guard. It's the same word that's used in chapter 28 and verse 4 to refer to the men who were guarding the tomb. Right? So keep, teach them to guard or watch over or keep my commandments. And, and implicit in the word is the idea of a continuation, a continual guard, a continual obeying of the orders of the king. Right? That is what he means. Right, so, here's the question. Are you, in every sphere of your life, obeying what Christ has commanded you? Right, so, I would assume the answer is no. And that you are setting out, your life right now is about trying to bring all of these little areas in your life where you see, and it's humbling, isn't it? Where you see that you're not obeying Christ in these areas. And what you're trying to do is bring your life underneath the submission of Christ's lordship. Right? You're trying to bring your life and your children's life and everyone's around you, but specifically you, underneath Christ's lordship. Where you live out his commands. Right? Because we know this is what he's called us to do. And it's Psalm 1. It's the path of blessedness. Right? To obey him. To walk in his statutes. And this is what discipleship is, and I have to be done. Discipleship simply is coming alongside another person and helping them to live out what Christ has commanded. Not simply knowing, but doing. And John Piper is helpful here, and I'll close with this quote. Jesus did not say, teach them all my commandments. He said, teach them to observe all my commandments. You can teach a parrot all of Jesus' commandments, but you cannot teach a parrot to observe his commands. Parrots will not repent and worship Jesus and lay up treasure in heaven and love their enemies and go out like sheep in the midst of wolves to herald the kingdom of God. Teaching people to parrot all that Jesus commanded is easy. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded is impossible. That is, it's impossible apart from from God's help, right? So, I hope you are convinced that you have an obligation to your Lord to be making disciples. In the weeks to come, I'll finish Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and uh, we will do some practical look, looking at what is it to make a disciple, right? Uh, what does it mean to follow and obey the Lord in this area? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the injunction that we have here in this passage. Lord, it is clear you have made our pathway straight. Uh, It's not confusing. Uh, We don't have to wonder what you want us to do with our lives. Lord, it's very simple, very clear. We are to be making disciples. So Lord, would you help us by your grace to do just that for your glory. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you that he took on the cross for your namesake, and so that we could be reconciled to you, not just now, but for eternity. Lord, we praise you and ask your grace as we worship you in the next hour. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.